I'm feeling my southern roots this morning. It's because I'm wearing blue jeans. Feels like I'm back in the south in like July because it's warm here even though it's December. Can, we, can uh, we swap screens over? We did? So I don't have any, I don't have any, well this is going to be a short service. I'm going to have to sit down there with you guys so I can see the verses. All right. Let me work on it. Give me a second. I fixed it. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. So we're going to be in the book of Judges. This is the book of Judges part three this morning. And now let's get right into it. So if you see the nations here, you see the, the countries, there's Africa on the left. You see uh, Italy is the boot heel up there, up high on the left. That's the Mediterranean Sea uh, out there uh, on the, that, that's surrounded by the body of water. The Black Sea, Caspian Sea are up above, Gulf of Aquaba over to your right. So you can, you can see where we're at. And last week, we started, or we, fi- or, uh, we finished with Othniel, the, the first uh, judge after Joshua. And Judges chapter 3, verse 11 says, And the land had rest 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Kenez, died. So that's where we finished off with the judges before. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and mercy. And Lord, uh, as we look back at this with 3,500 years of history, uh, f- Father, uh, we mess up a lot. And uh, Lord, as we just sang, uh, your mercies are more. Thank you for that. Thank you for your mercy, for your goodness to us. Pray you'd open the word to us this morning. Lord, I pray you'd help us to get out of the way and for your name to be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Judges part three, Eglon. So before we get into Eglon, we're going to be dealing with the Moabites. Eglon is the king of Moab. And I want to just take a minute and and know where the Moabites are from. Now, the reason I'm doing this is because when we go back or when you go back later and you're reading through the book of Judges, I don't want you to just read a bunch of names and say, okay, there were Judges, the end, but to know where you're at, to know who's there, who's the players, why, where you're at, and to connect with the stories. God thought these stories were important enough to preserve them for us from 3,500 years ago. That makes these pretty important stories. That makes them vital for us to know, for our kids to know. So I want to, I want to go through this with a little historical and ge- geographical perspective. So who are the Moabites? This is Lot, about 1900 B.C. So this is back with Abraham's day. It says in Genesis chapter 19, verse 36, Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. And the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab. This, the same is the father of the Moabites unto this day. So the first, uh, what, you know the story of Lot, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's wife dies. They leave the city. He asks, can I go to a different city? So God preserves one of the other cities. They go over there. They, he's pr- apparently a pariah. He leaves and goes up into the mountains with his daughters. His daughters get Lot intoxicated and lie with him, and he has two sons. The oldest son of Lot, his name is Moab. That's where the Moabites come from. Now, this is up in 1451 B.C. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9, 
Moses and the Israelites have left Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've uh, come up and they uh, beat the Amorites. Uh, and now they're coming up to this area of Moab, Deuteronomy 2.9. And the Lord said unto me, Distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them in battle. For I will not give thee their land for a possession, because I have given Ur unto the children of Lot for a possession. So he says to Moses, don't fight the Moabites. I'm not going to let you beat them the way I did the Amorites. I'm giving this land to Lot's kids. So that's, that's back in 1451. This is the track of the children of Israel. If you see the orange line, as they've left the mount, they came up to Edom right there where the Moabites were. They went all the way back down to the um, sea and then back up along the... Uh, eastern side of Moab there and crossed into the plains just north of Moab just across the river from Jericho. And that's where we have the story of Balaam and, and the children. This is the first time that the children of Israel fall into sin with the Moabites. Numbers chapter 21, uh, 22 verse 1 it says, And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side Jordan by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw that Israel had uh, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was sore afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. It's interesting. It's the same word. God said, "Don't distress the Moabites." So they go around Moab. They go north of their territory. They dwell there in the plains. But the king of 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 uh, the Moabites, this this uh, Balak was so terrified of the number of the children of Israel and having seen what they did to the Amorites that they were distressed, not because of anything Israel did, but just because Israel was there. Numbers 22.5, And he sent messengers, therefore, unto Balaam, the son of Beor, unto Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of, the, of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt, Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against me. So Moab, uh, king, Balak, sends his guys up to where Balaam was, which is north of Israel. And um, this, is, this is the map of Israel. You see the little lake there in the middle at the bottom? That's the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is uh, just a couple inches above that. This is where the children of Israel are, are hanging out in the plains. They're just north of Moab. And this is where Balaam is from, up there at Pethorah. So you can see it's a long trip. They're all the way up into Libya, maybe in the edge of Turkey up there, in order to get Balaam to come back down and uh, curse Israel. This is a big deal to Balak. He wants, he wants to make sure that Israel doesn't fight him. Numbers 22.6. It says, Come now, therefore, I pray thee, Curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail that we may smite them, and that I may drive them out of the land. For I want that he whom thou blessest is blessed, and he whom thou cursest is cursed. So Balak says to Balaam, I want you to come and curse the Israelites, because I know this thing of you. If you bless somebody, they multiply. They have peace. They have fruit, their cows bring forth lots of calves. They're very blessed. If you don't, if you curse somebody, everything goes to shambles in their lives. 
So he said, I want you to come and curse the, uh, the Israelites so that we can destroy them and beat them. And you know the story of Balaam. He sets off to do just that. The donkey uh, sees the angel, crushes his foot. Eventually, Balaam ends up down there in Moab and blesses the children of Israel up one side and down the other. But he didn't stop there. After blessing the children of Israel, he got a great idea about how to get them to sin and God to curse Israel. So this was Balaam's idea. We learn uh, further on into Psalms and into the New Testament. It says in, in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1, in Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredoms with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifice of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself to Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So Balaam worked this plan out with Balak, and he said, if you can't beat them, join them. If you can't destroy the people, get them to marry your daughters. So the Israelites are living there in the plain, and this is not long after they've left Israel, I mean left Egypt. They're, they're dwelling there in the plain just north of Moab, and uh, Balak gets the best-looking women they've got, and they go down there and they go, hey guys, you know you just left Egypt, and and you're up here in this strange country, but would you like one of my daughters, one of these ladies from our, our nation? And uh, if you do, just come on over to the temple. We'll get married. There will be some feasting and some fornication and the things that go on there and, and just get married. And it doesn't take long. And some of the children of Israel say, that's a great idea. We'll just join ourselves to those around us and uh, do it the way they do it. And so they begin to uh, go to this to this temple where uh, Baal Peora is is uh, worshipped, and um, it's evil the stuff that they get involved in. There's child sacrifice. God tells us to these gods uh, as Israel gets involved, they give their children to that. And when God sees it, He gets angry. And there's a prophet of the Lord that grabs a spear and runs into the tent and pins one of these guys with with his lady. Pins them both. Through, the, through their corsos and into the ground. And God says that's a blessed man and stops the judgment of God coming on them. God was very serious about them being separate from the people of Moab and from those people's gods. Then we move about 550 years after Moab is born. So remember, after Lot's son is born. And this is after the children get back. So we were at about 450 uh, 1450 B.C., we've moved up 100 years, we're at 1350 B.C., and they've, they've done their wandering in the desert, they've made it back into the promised land, they've, Joshua has done the, the seven years of, of campaign, and then there's a falling away, and then there's the 40 years under, uh, under Othniel where, where Israel follows the Lord, Israel falls away again, so are we caught up in history? You, 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 kind of catch where we're at. The problem sometimes when we're reading the Old Testament is we read through and, and everything is two-dimensional. It all seems like it happens at the same time. And when that happens, you go a little cross-eyed and you miss some of the context of what's taking place and you miss some of what God is doing and it doesn't change you the way that it should change you. So the reason is not just to give you information. Right? It's not just so you know things. The reason is because God put this here for us because it will change us. 
So if the story is important, we want to know what the story is and why. So here we have 550 years after Moab is born. Think back 550 years ago, where were your ancestors? Mine were on the Isle of Man, somewhere tooling around uh, fishing. That's a long time ago. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, America's happened since then. All these wars and stuff has taken place. That's how much history is involved since, since uh, Moab has been living in this land. Now back to Judges. So we just finished the 40 years with Othniel, um, and, and we, which is Caleb's son-in-law. We just finished that, that, that 40 years of them walking uprightly. And it starts in Judges chapter 3, verse 12, and says, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. There's a lot in this verse. There's a lot of subtext here, a lot that we can think about. Um, but the, the thing I want to point out is, as I was reading through this and studying through this and praying over this this week and thinking about it, meditating on it, it struck me that God treats the children of Israel like children, different than he does with us. Um, you, you know why children obey their parents? Because they have to, right? I mean, children don't obey your parents. Now, I'm not talking about teenagers. I'm not talking about young adults that are growing up. I'm talking about little kids. They obey their parents because they have to. Um, if you've ever had a baby and, you, and, you, and you're holding the baby and their eyes get all red and they want to sleep, especially on the bottom, right? And they blink and, and then they get mad and they're like, you're holding me. You're making me sleep. I don't want to sleep. And they're like, meh. And you pat in their bottom, and they fall asleep, and then they wake up, and like, you tricked me! You made me sleep! And then you, and you go through this, and they don't want to. They, they resist that. And it doesn't, that's, I mean, that's the first time. And then as kids grow up, and you say, uh, don't run to the street. Are they going to go, you know what? You know, you have more wisdom than I do. You um, have more time, and uh, I trust you. I trust your judgment. So I'm not going to. There goes my soccer ball, but you know what? I can't get it. It's out in the street. And they said, no. You know why kids don't run in the street? Because you disallow it. Because they're going to get either a spanking or a, they're going to get a, uh, a grounding or they're going to lose. Because you say don't do it and enforce that. You, you don't let them do it. Now, there's all sorts of different enforcements and, and, and things that we do. But ultimately, the children obey their parents. Little kids obey their parents because they have to. You know, when my kids were little, um, and, and we go somewhere and do something, and I say, stop, come here, then I expect them to stop and come here, hands down. I'm, uh, the first time, I'm, I'm not going to ever raise my voice. I'm not going to come get you. I'm not going to take things away from you. Stop and come here. And you know what? They did. From the time the kids are two or three years old, they're playing whatever. Hey, stop, come here. Drop it, come to me. You know why? Because that was the rule. Because I enforced that rule every time, consistently. You know what I never did a single time? I never yelled at my kids. Ne never. I don't yell at my kids. Because I, I don't want to. I don't want to have to yell at them for them to obey me. I want them to be obedient the first time. Kids are a little scientist. You know, kids... Kids compare, and they have notes, and you see the parents that are like, hey, Johnny, come here. Nothing. Johnny, you come here right now. 
Nothing. Johnny, I'm going to beat your little tail if you don't come here right now. Nothing. Okay, Johnny, I'm counting to three. Nothing. One, two, nothing. Three, nothing. I'm going again. One, two, and then Johnny comes. Why? Because he knows the second time that you count to three, he has to obey you. But until you count to three the second time, he's good to go. That's the rules. That's what's going to get enforced, and only what's going to get enforced is obeyed. My kids, the rules were first time, hey, come here. And if it was serious, I get quiet. Hey, come here right now. Oh, daddy's quiet. Listen. And you know what? Absolute peace and joy. Absolute just fun together. There's, there's, no, con there's no yelling. There's no fussing because there's harmony. I grew up that way. I, I remember uh, when I was young, uh, my dad was counseling somebody, and he did this and pointed out the room. We'd all leave. We're used to that. And we were at somebody's house, and dad snapped his thumb and pointed out of the room, and all five of us jumped up and left. And, and they went, what did you just do? How did you do that? Do what? Get your kids to leave. I told them to. You didn't say anything. No, I snapped my finger and pointed. We, didn't, we weren't upset. That was just the rules. Of course we left. Dad said to. You know what happens if you don't obey Dad? He enforces the law. So you got to obey Dad. And, and you happily do it. You obey Dad. They were so excited he wrote a book about it. And, and, and people want to know, how do you do that? You know, God's treating Israel like children. He's enforcing the law. He gives them a commandment and says, I want you to do thus and when you don't, I'm going to come and bring judgment to your whole nation. But when kids grow up, the Bible says, children, obey your parents. But then it says, honor your father and mother. Because you have a different relationship. You see, there are no consequences to me disobeying my dad now. There aren't any. I can, he can tell me to do something, and I can giggle. And there are no consequences. There haven't been for 30 years. If, if dad says, do this, and I say, I'm not going to, then I don't get spanking. He doesn't come take my truck keys away. He doesn't do it because I'm an adult, right? But I honor my father listening to him now because I love him and I trust him. You see the difference in that relationship. No longer is there an instant consequence for negative behavior. Instead, there's an expectation that as an adult... I've learned to trust my dad and my mom, and, and, I, and I look to them for guidance if need be. And so when God deals with us today, he deals with us more like adults. He deals with us from a position of love and trust, that we love and trust him, and want to follow him, not because of the instant consequence, but because we believe in him. And we trust him. And that's always where he was going. The children of Israel needed to learn obedience to God. It took them a long time. Finally, when the children of Israel got back from Babylon, they followed God unerringly for 500 years. They followed him when they got back in the land. Now, they weren't godly, but they didn't worship Baal. And they, they, they kept their, their uh, knowing and keeping the feast days all the way up till Christ, Christ came. Now, they didn't love God. They didn't know him the way that they should. But they learned better because they got spankings. And they learned that when we ignore God and when we worship Baal, it is negative consequences ensue. It's difficult. And once they learned that and got to that position, Christ came back and gave a better way. 
it says in the book of Hebrews. Look at in Romans chapter 2. He says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. But after thy hardness and the and impudent heart treasures up, thy, up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Paul is talking to Israel and he says, makes this list of bad stuff that people do. And he, and he waits until Israel that's reading agrees with him in Romans. That's right. That's terrible. And he says, do you think that you who have pleasure in the things that they're doing are any better than them? Do you think that you've judged the idolater as wicked and yet you hold up money or you hold up a relationship or something that's an idol in your life? He says, do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? Don't you know that the love of God is what draws you to repentance, not the judgment. Not that he's going to come and swat you down. You know, as Christians, if we have to wait until God spanks us, which he says, as many as he loveth, he chasteneth, right? If we have to wait for the chastening to get pushed back to God, and then we err as soon as possible and then get chastened back to God, we're acting like little children. We're acting like infants that are fussing because we have to take a nap. We're expected to act like adults. Paul said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that as many of us as are baptized into Jesus Christ are baptized into his death? Paul says, listen, do you think that now that you're born again and the consequences are withdrawn, that you get to act like a spoiled kid and run into the street to get your soccer ball? There's no consequences. Daddy's not going to spank me the way that he did Israel. No, no, act like an adult. Act like you're giving your sovereign, your God, giving him your uh, will and saying, you're the Lord of my life because you loved me. It's a different kind of relationship. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that great that we can have that relationship with God, that grown-up being a son of God, an heir to the throne, and not just a, a toddler that has to get spanked again and again? The, the Scripture says that, that you should have in you the mind of Christ, to not be double-minded, but to be single-minded. Instead of saying, I want to worship Baal of Peor, and then whack, okay, fine. No, no, no. This is my focus. This is where I want to go. I want to get closer to Jesus. There's a song that says, I want to get so close to Jesus that there's no big change on that day that Jesus calls my name. Is your life going to completely change when the rapture gets here? When you're caught up to be with the Lord in heaven and you can't do that anymore? Whatever that is. Is it going to be, you took it away from me. You see, there's two ways to control kids. You can control the kid or you can control the kid's circumstance. You can control their surroundings. Most parents do that. If there's a, a something to break, they take it and they put it where the kids can't reach it. If your kids are two years old and you have to move the stuff, then you need to, you need to read some child training books. Because when, when your kids are two, you should be able to lay a glass vase in the floor and say, don't touch it, and it not get touched. See those stairs? Don't climb those stairs, and they don't get climbed because they understand the consequences 
of, of disobedience, whether that's uh, taking away their Xbox at two years old or a spanking, it's, that's up to you. But, but there, should be, there should be control in your children's lives. And so when, when God comes along and says, don't fornicate, he shouldn't have to come along and spank you for it. He shouldn't have to come along and take it away from you. When he says don't drink, you know, the, the people that struggle with sin, they want God to remove the struggle. Take this away from me so I don't want it anymore. Remove the desire for it. The Bible says that you're blessed when you endure temptation, not when you get away from it. Not when it's not tempting anymore, but when you're tempted and you turn away from it because you love him. That's what the children of Israel failed to do. Okay, I, I chased my rabbit trail too long. Let's keep going. Judges 3.13. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. So this is the uh, Eglon, the king of Moab now. We're uh, up in the 1400s and uh, BC and our 1300s BC, and he he's gone across the Jordan River. He's taken the two nations from the north and possessed the city of palm trees. Now here's how we know where it is: Deuteronomy 34:3, and the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees unto Zorah. So the city of palm trees is in the valley of Jericho. It's just on the western side of the Jordan River. In the valley, there's a big valley that rises up to, uh, to Israel, to the uh, Mount of Olives, so that area. It's, it's in that, it's in that uh, passage there. So here we are, 1436 B.C. This is 18 years after. And uh, Ehud is in southern Israel in the province of Ephraim. He's a Benjamite. Judges chapter 3, verse 14. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Girah, a Benjamite, a man left-handed, and by him the children of Israel sent a present to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, there's a few things that are interesting here. It took them 18 years. This is a dumb bunch of people. They, they, I'm sorry, but morons, right? The, 18 years they're in captivity. And then when? They cry out to God, God, save us. We're going to turn away from the idols and turn back to you, God. Then he raised up a deliverer. It was dependent on them. God strengthened Eglon and, and allowed his armies to grow, his horses to flourish, his crops to grow, his king, his battles to be won. God blessed Eglon so that he could smite Israel on God's behalf, this wicked king. He did God's work. Listen, God can use evil men to do his work. He does every day. Because if it's happening, it's God's work. God's design is to bring his children into glory with him. And he wants more kids. But, but when we fail, God can use evil men to, to bring about his glory. And he did that. He raised up Eglon. He blessed him. He used him for a long time. Finally, the children of Israel cry out to the Lord, and God raised them up a deliverer. The deliverer is left-handed. Isn't that an interesting little topic? He's a southpaw. It, 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 it runs in the Benjamites. This is a common thing, and it's pointed out. Samuel wrote this, this book, and, uh, or at least it was written during his lifetime. So we think Samuel wrote the book of Judges, 
And he keeps pointing out left-handed people. Maybe Samuel is left-handed. I don't know. Judges, tw- you're left-handed. Good for you, little sister. Judges chapter 20, verse 15. And the children of Benjamin were numbered at that time of the cities, 20 and 6,000 men that drew sword. And uh, besides the inhabitants of, Gib- of Gibda, which were numbered 700 chosen men. Among all this people were 700 chosen men left-handed. Everyone could sling stones at a hair's breadth and not miss. Isn't that wild? So he says that out of these 26,000 men, okay, there's 26,000, but 700 of them are left-handed. I don't know why Samuel's excited about it, but he was. And he said, these guys are so good, man, they could sling the stone in just a hair's breadth and nail that thing every time. These were... uh, very um, dexterous men, I suppose. First Chronicles 12.2, again, they were armed with bows and could use both the right hand and the left in hurling stones and shooting arrows out of a bow, even of Saul's brethren of Benjamin. They're really excited about Benjamites being left-handed or ambidextrous at this point. They could shoot left-handed or right-handed, and they were, uh, they were top soldiers. I don't know why that's important. I just thought it was cool, so I showed you. That's what happens when you give me a microphone and a clicker. Okay, Judges 3.16. But Ehud made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubit length, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. So Ehud is the deliverer for Israel. He's left-handed Benjamite, and God calls him to deliver Israel. The first thing that he did was he smithed a dagger. Now, this is not a simple undertaking. He has to go and collect the metal for this. And it was common in those days when you had a vassal state to disarm them, to, to register all their arms. No, they didn't do that. To, uh, so so <laughs> that's my NRA plug. So the, 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 it, was, it was common in those days when you had a vassal state that you wanted to control absolutely and make them do what you wanted, you take their weapons away from them. And you don't allow them something that could be used to fight back. Uh, what he makes is a weapon. It's two-edged. That's terrible for butchering or anything like that. You want a one sharp side to cut with. And so he makes this dagger. It's a foot and a half long. So it's about you know the size of your forearm there. And he has to go and get the metal and then get it hot and then find a way to beat it to make a, a hammer or however he's got to do it to beat that thing down. And he doesn't have a grinder. If you've ever filed down a, a, a hatchet or a machete, imagine taking that thing from a rough bit of iron and filing it down razor sharp. He invests a lot of time and energy. Why does that matter? Because when God calls men to do something, we want to do something awesome, right? We want to go on a mission trip and win 100 people to the Lord in a week and a half. And then, you know, four days scuba diving, come home and have a big lesson about it. When God calls men to do something, it's usually work. It's usually a lot of work. It usually requires effort, and it requires uh, mundane in his, in his shop, working, and this is after hours, and getting something done because God's called him to do it. Then he takes that thing, and he hides it under his raiment. So the dagger would probably look something like that. It's a little bit of a rough dagger. Beats it out, files it down. Doesn't want to have a cross guard on it because you want to be able to pull it out of your garment without it hanging on anything. He gets that thing ready and honed down, and this is the kind of clothes one might wear at that time. And uh, it was a series of wraps and things. Uh, if you were working in the field, you'd wear a, uh, like a skirt that you'd tie around your waist. 
but if you were going to court or doing something uh, official, you'd wear something like you'd think of as a Roman toga, but a bunch of cloth wrapped around you that would have an opening in it. Now, I think just as a, a way of the, that I would do this is that when he made his wrap and he's hiding the dagger, he's coming into the king and nobody knows, and it says that he's left-handed, it's on his right thigh. If you're going to cross-draw, it takes a lot of movement, and your dagger's got to be hidden, right? So you'd have to come over here and draw it up. If you, if you put it inside your thigh, then, then you have your loose garment on, nobody can see it, and, and your weapon's not hanging off the way that a typical dagger would. You slide your hand in the slit in your, in your uh, robe and pull that thing out and use it, which is what he's about to do. And he brought, brought the present unto Eglon, the king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. So, um, Eglon is a king, and he has vassal states. Now, when we have, we have mechanized uh, farming today, so one farmer can grow 1,000 acres of, of food that will feed 100,000 people. And not well, but it'll feed us. If you grow 1,000 acres of soybeans, you can feed an awful lot of people on that and have protein and food. But when you are farming with uh, an oxen by hand and you're picking and you're, and you're putting things and you're cutting wheat and shocking it and drying it, it's a lot of effort to feed a family. You can work six days a week, 10 hours a day, and starve to death. It requires a lot of effort. If you want to have an army, uh, 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 soldiers, and wealth, you have to feed them. He's coming across the river with 10,000 soldiers. Think about feeding 10,000 people. If you have to go and prepare food for 10,000 people and keep them well-fed, keep them with shoes on, get the guys that are, are sharpening and fixing swords or sandals and spears, and you have to fix and prepare and do all that, it requires a lot of wealth. It was difficult to produce that. There was uh, Rome had a million people in one city. That didn't happen again until the 1800s in Europe. So it required a lot of effort to, to get uh, a city that could hold that many people. So when he has 10,000 soldiers and, and he's coming across the river, they're coming to take food. So they'd come over, probably in the fall, and they would, they would go and split up and take groups to different places they would take your food, your gold, your uh, stuff that you've produced, bring it back to their nation into a central location, and then go back home with it. So here's the map. That's the Dead Sea. The orange line would be where Moab would come from and then cross the Jordan River just north of the Dead Sea. And he had that place that they, that they dwelt in, that they had taken in the valley uh, of the Jordan River right there by the uh, city of Palms. And he would base out of there, Eglon would, send his soldiers out, bring the wealth back from Judea, and then take it back home in the early winter time or whenever they move back and forth. And so when they brought a present, they're bringing uh, the wealth of their nation and delivering it to Eglon. I'm sure the soldiers are going and getting tomatoes and they're getting the olives and things like that. The, the rulers of the area are bringing gold, they're bringing... Um, jewels, things that they've dug out of the ground, things that would be for the king and currying favor with him. 
So Judges chapter 3.17, it says, And they brought a present to Eglon, king of Moab. And Eglon was a very, uh, very fat man. And when he had made an end to offering the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. So uh, Ehud shows up with a whole bunch of stuff, a bunch of a retina of, of people that are, are with him, camels, horses, uh, donkeys, um, goods, oil, uh, maybe some olive oil, some gold. And they present that with uh, obeisance and, and, and everything to the king. They, he sends his people home and he turns around, but he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. So Eglon uh, goes and apparently the king is walking with him from the palace residence there in the Isle of Palm, or the uh, city of Palms. And uh, they're walking up uh, away, and so see the purple line there where it heads north out of Jericho? They would have walked up that direction, and there was a, uh, a quarries is cut stone. There was a, a, a garden of altars, a garden of idols that they would walk through there. And I think, just reading between the lines, I think that Ehud just about chickened out, that he got to there, there's soldiers everywhere, there's people everywhere, the knife is sweaty and heavy on his on his side there on his on his leg. He's maybe hyperventilating. He sends all the people. He can't do it. You ever feel that way when you're witnessing to somebody? And then and then he turns and he starts walking away and he gets to the garden of idols, this where the quarry was, where they're where they're cutting the stone. He sees all these idols getting cut. He turns around and he says to the king, I have a secret message for you. Maybe he's getting ready to stab him. The king says, Stop, hold up, right there, stop. I don't want anybody to hear this. Maybe he thinks that Eglon is going, I mean, that Ehud is going to uh, give him a message about somebody else that's holding out. One of the other towns, they've got a bunch of gold that he can give you, or whatever. He, I don't know. He thought that this is a secret message. God is working on Eglon. Eglon says, wait, I want us to be alone. Ehud could not have planned this. He couldn't have gotten ready for this. Ehud is ready to give his life for the children of Israel. He's going to stab this king and be cut down 15 seconds later. But the king says, wait, I want to do this alone. Judges 3.20, And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat. So the summer parlor in, in those days, you'd have a, uh, your house, your, your little castle, and uh, you had a westerly wind that would come over from the Mediterranean, and it would come over like the Mount of Olives and come through this valley down onto uh, the, the Jordan River Valley. And as you get into the fall, the wind usually swings around to the north a little bit, but you get this cool breeze. So the summer parlor would be upstairs, like those flat roofs you think of in, in the building in those days. You have the flat roof, and you have a shade thing built over it, and uh, it would be a private thing with lots of curtains hanging around that the breeze could come right through and hold the sun out. And it would be a place of respite, a place that the king would go and rest and, and take his ease, maybe take a nap in the heat of the day and be left alone. So he takes Eglon to this, I mean Ehud, to the center chamber, to this place that he's up there by himself. And, and Ehud comes before him and he says, I have a message from Yahweh, from, Jeho from our God. He uses that word. And when he does, I suppose out of respect because it's a message from God, Eglon stands up. And as he does, Ehud reaches into his garment and pulls out his message from God. 
And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft also went in after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade, so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly, and the dirt came out. Yeah. So, so Ehud pulls this dagger and jams it into this king and, and kills him and, and stabs it up. And I, I assume he got his kidneys or something because he goes silent instantly. And, and the dagger just sucks back there up into those fat rolls, disappears, and his dirt comes out. The, the stuff that's in his intestinal tract comes kind of squeezing out and smells and falls over and he dies. That was God's message to the king. You know, aren't you glad for the mercy of God? You know what we deserve? This, and then eternal hell. We've rebelled against the king of glory. We have fought him in his domain and said, you can't control me. And then we get the opportunity to come to him and to say, no, I want you to be the Lord of my life. And he has made restitution. He has paid your debt with his son's blood. Man, I'm glad for the mercy of God. This is what we deserve. This is the rightful thing to have happened to us, except for the love of God. The love of God constrains us and keeps us from all sin because we know what he's done. We know what we deserve and what he's done for us. This is not harsh. This is justice. This man killed babies. This man presided over a nation that worshipped a God where they would produce children and burn them in honor of their God. This man needed to die. He needed a dagger shoved into his stomach and to fall over and die. And God delivered that through Ehud, his, his prophet, his ruler, his deliverer. Heavy stuff, man. Judges 3.23, And then Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. And when he was gone out, his servants came, and when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, Surely he covereth his feet in his summer chamber. So Ehud, this, imagine this room. It's probably the northwest corner, second story. It's got interior walls, but no exterior walls. It's got the hanging curtains. Ehud... God just delivered this, this Eglon to him, kills him alone, runs over through the porch. You know he's just panicking at this point. Shuts the doors and locks them. Goes back over and jumps off the porch, back down, gets away, and then takes off. And the people that are outside come over, knock on the doors. Oh, he's covering his feet. They assumed that he was, that he was having a constitutional, that he was, you know, go into the bathroom in his chamber pot because it smelled. And so they, he's quiet. And they're like, oh, okay, well, we're not going to bother him. He's having a, a difficult time. So they waited. God set this up for Ehud. So while they're waiting, Ehud gets out, and they tarried till they were ashamed. And behold, he opened not the uh, doors of the parlor. Therefore, they took a key and opened them. And behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. And Ehud escaped while they tarried and passed beyond the quarries and escaped unto Sirath. Now, that's not a short distance away. So Ehud does the deed, kills the king, locks the door, jumps off the porch, takes off everybody's, hey, see ya, thanks for bringing all the stuff, past all the armies, past the guards, we'll see you next year. 
Okay, bye. And, you know, he's sweating bullets, and he goes up over the hill. Gets away scot-free, man. They to totally a God thing. You see the pink line there? It would be something like that where he goes over and around and up the valley there back towards Sierra. And he, and he gets back there, gets onto the mountain over in Ephraim. And it came to pass when he came that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mount and he before them. And he said unto them, follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, unto your hand. And they went down after him and took the fords of Jordan toward Moab. And suffered not a man to pass over. So he goes up. The, the trumpet is like the shofar, the, the ram's horn. Gets up on the mountains, blows that trumpet. They haven't heard it in 20 years. That battle cry, that call to arms, that, that victory cry. We are going to war. And he, and he tells the men, follow me. God has delivered the nation to you. You know, killing the king wouldn't do it. But having God on your side would. And that's what, that's what he was raised up by. He was raised up by God. No battle strategy could complete this. But here is Ehud. He leads the men, and the first thing they do is they go back around the Isle of the City of Palms. They go down to the River of Jordan, and it's, it's deep at this point, getting close to the Dead Sea, swift down here. They get to the shallow spots where you would ford the river, and they guard those positions. The reason is they've got 10,000 Moabite soldiers in Israel right now, and they don't want them to cross Jordan and get back to Moab. They want to hold them in Israel and take them out before they get reinforcements. For 18 years, the soldiers have been raiding without any problems. So they weren't expecting this, and they're probably spread out in different groups. They took out the commander first. They hold the fords. They come in, and as they do, Israel routes them, kills them all. 329, Judges 329, and they slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men, all lusty and all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest four score years. So here, uh, when, when Moab uh, brought all their soldiers across, they had a land that had no swords. They had no shields or armor. And God said to one man, sir, I want you to fight for me. So he got his little grinder, his little bench, some piece of metal, and he made a dagger about that long. And the next day they had 10,000 weapons of war, every soldier. They had the armor, the shields, the swords. They had the spears. They had the food that came with them, the gold they were carrying. God advanced the cause of Israel from an 18-inch dagger to a standing army in one day because God was with them. You see, Israel's problem was not Moab. Israel's problem was Baal Peor. It was following for false gods. You see, our problem is not a lack of money. It's not a lack of time. It's not a lack of ability. Our problem is a lack of faith in God in, in our lives. And I know that because when I see men in the Scripture who are great men of faith like Paul and he's put in prison and everything is taken from him, it's not a problem because he's got the Lord. And so he's singing and praising and honoring God and prison doors open. And, and then he gets up and he's like, well, I needed to go to Rome to do missions work. The government paid for it. They sent me up here. Not only that, they, you know, I got to stop by the island and eat a snake and, and, and uh, or, or, you know, get bit by a snake. He tried to eat me first, put him there in the fire, and, and God takes care of it because the issue is not a lack of ability to travel. God can take care of that. 
an issue is a lack of faith, and that was their issue. Uh, almost done here, 1330-ish, because I don't know when it took place, B.C., up in Gaza, western Israel, the deliverer named Shamgar. So this is the other, he's not actually a judge. The, the Hebrew word for this one is savior rather than judge. And uh, the reason for that is uh, he didn't judge Israel. We uh, see the red on the left side of the screen right there. That would be where the Philistines uh, came in. They were a seafaring people. So they came and landed after uh, Israel had uh, possessed the land. And they weren't a problem until later on. And those are the guys that David fought primarily. Judges 3.31, it says, And after him was Shamgar the son of Aneth, which slew of the Philistines 600 men with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. So after, uh, after Ehud, so it was after Ehud had started, uh, uh, Shamgar slew uh, 600 men with an ox goad. Now, think about killing 600 men with a stick. That's a lot of guys. It probably wasn't all at once. He was a terror to the Philistines. He lived over there on the western side of Israel and over there in Gaza. And he just, when the Philistines would send raiding parties in, they were a seafaring, think uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, people that lived in Iceland that would raid that are called something that I can't remember because I didn't watch How to Train Your Dragon enough. The barbarians, the Vikings, thank you. The Vikings, when they would come in and, um, and, and uh, the, the Philistines would come in and raid like Vikings raid, here's Shamgard, he's down there with an ox goad to kill them. It says in chapter 4 that, uh, and the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. So the count in the book of Judges of when they did right and when they did wrong after 80 years, um, they did wrong after Ehud died, not Shamgard. So Shamgard was not a judge. Uh, 331, he slew them with an ox goad. An ox goad looks something like this. It's a long stick up to about eight feet long. And you would, uh, as you're plowing along with your oxen, you have a what's called a single tree or double tree, depending on how, how your oxen are hooked up. And then you have the straps that go up to the yoke that's around their neck. And, and you're, you're working that plow along, and the oxen wants to take off left or right. You have an ox goad that you just sit up there and you tap its shoulder. It pokes it and moves it back left or right. That's a tool. And usually either the same end or the other end, there's a really fancy one. The one end or the other, you would have a hooked blade or a, or a, a spade on it that you could knock off the stuff off your plow. So it was, a, it was a hand tool that you used in farming. Well, this guy killed 600 Philistines with it uh, through his life because God raised him up to be a deliverer to the nation of Israel. And then in, after this period, Israel had its longest time of rest, 80 years, in this whole 300 years, some odd year period of the judges of Israel. So that is the story of Eglon and Ehud. I hope that as you are reading Judges later, you slow down, think about where you're at, when you're at, what you're geographically you're at, and then see what God has to teach you from it. Now, I know that it is 11 o'clock, but today we get to take the Lord's table. So uh, if you guys want to uh, come up here and uh, start singing while they're singing, we'll go get the elements to take the Lord's table together, and we'll do that at the conclusion of the song. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and mercy. Thank you, God, that you extend mercy to us and not a dagger, Lord. Uh, we know we don't deserve it, but uh, you give it to us, Lord. You took the nails so we didn't have to take the dagger. So thank you, Father, for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. 
that unmerited favor that we have with you. Father, I pray that the stories of the book of Judges won't just be history lessons, Father, but they will be um, lessons that we uh, internalize and change from, that we grow and grow up and walk closer to you. Father, I pray that you would just glorify your name in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.